Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, missionary to Zimbabwe, Africa, sent out of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. It's certainly not unheard of for foreign missionaries to change fields or to leave foreign service to engage in some domestic mission effort. This has happened frequently over the course of missions history, and it still takes place in our current missionary enterprise. We'll talk about one such transition on the program today, and this particular transition traverses one of the widest cultural gaps that I can think of. One-time veteran missionary to the country of Papua New Guinea, and now for the past several years, a church planter in Washington, D.C., Brad is the founder and pastor of Graceway Baptist Church on Capitol Hill. He and I were recently in a conference together in northern Ohio, and he graciously agreed to sit down and talk about the ministry in New Guinea and D.C., and it proved to be a very enjoyable conversation. In this first part of a two-part interview, Brother Brad walks us through his call to Papua New Guinea and some of the primary labors that he undertook in that country over a period of 17 years. And then he traces the call and transition to our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. That is, from the poorest country in the Southern Hemisphere to one of the most elite, educated, and affluent cities in the Western world. I assure you, it is every bit as interesting as it sounds. With that introduction, here's part one of my conversation with Pastor Brad Wells. Brother Brad, I appreciate you taking some time to sit down for the conversation and I want to talk to you about your labor in establishing Graceway Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Yeah. But I'd like to go back a bit further to begin with because you have undergone one of the most interesting transitions in mission fields right. of anyone that I know. <laughs> and uh, long before God put it, put it into your heart to establish a church in Washington, D.C., you were deployed to the jungles of New Guinea. Yeah. And so uh, that is an interesting transition. And actually, this story uh, intersects with some other conversations we've had on this program. Your brother has been a guest on the podcast before. Uh, Brother Gene Sharp, radio yes. planting missionary, has also been on the program. And yeah. of course, his story intersects with yours. So that will be of interest, that background to some of our listeners. So if you don't mind, go back uh, right. for us. How did the Lord call you to the country of Papua New Guinea to start yeah. with? I was um, I was a junior in high school, and my uh, my parents had a huge desire uh, for missions uh, to go to the mission field. By mission field, I mean a field, a society, a community different than their own. I believe every community is a mission field, and every Christian is a missionary. And we always must be asking ourselves the question, am I a mission field or a missionary? Uh, but in this particular uh, vernacular, we're, we're referring to a mission field as a community that is separate, different, and foreign to your own. My parents had that desire, and God miraculously... Uh, called them in my junior year of high school to go to the mission field of New Guinea through another missionary, through another uh, burden that God had placed on somebody else. And it was 
a Saturday night that my mother sat down at the piano and uh, my dad and the three of us boys, uh, three sons, went to the men's prayer meeting and mom played uh, some some mission songs and childhood songs at the piano and, and just cried out to the Lord, Lord, would you call us to the mission field? And dad took the three of us boys and we prayed and and he prayed lord would you call us to the mission field and it was that missions conference i think about the second night in that my dad felt the distinct calling of the lord to go uh, to the mission field and that's that's how i was called now that calling what i'm speaking of right now is more of that desire and that spiritual hunger was placed in my heart by the passion of both my parents. And so that's what they longed for, and that's what I longed for. And it was because, Brother Lee, it was because we, Dad quit his job, which was a big deal, and we left our church, and we sold off all our stuff, our junk, and we went and I watched Dad thrilled and happy to be in a grass roof hut. <laughs> and it was, the floor was crooked and, and you would drop things and they'd roll and hit with a thud on the back wall. And I watched Mom, she loved it and they made a home and they didn't complain. They didn't complain. We didn't feel like we were suffering this was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to us. And Brother, Brother Lee, I was rescued. I was rescued from myself and from the society in which I lived. I had already had the seeds of, of lust and the seeds of selfishness and the seeds of uh, making money and self-promotion were growing in my young heart. But when I saw what God did. I said, that's what I want. And I began to pray and ask God to call me. In my second year of Bible Institute, God did call me to go back to New Guinea and serve as a son with his father. And it was the greatest thrill of my life. Beautiful, beautiful story. And uh, provokes me very much. You know, I have a, I guess you were an older teenager. Yes. When your parents surrendered to go. Uh, what age were you when your parents went to the field the first time? Well, I was I was 18 years old when we went on a wow. survey trip, and that was 19 when we got there. It was a it was kind of a whirlwind thing, right? Yeah. And then came back to your home church. That's right. And in Bible Institute, God gave you the green light to return. That's right. And labor with your with your family. That's exactly Beautiful. right. Uh, I've got a 16-year-old that that will go with me to the to the mission field here very shortly, and uh, I would love nothing more than to see. Uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't enjoin my calling on my children in any kind of direct way, but it is the longing of my heart to see what yeah. God's done for me work itself out intergenerationally, yes. and and to see uh, multiple generations from our family just give their lives to serve Jesus Christ. It's a joy to talking with your brother and yeah. uh, and his boys and and see how that has worked its way down generationally it's right. a it is really a joy I think that is really the rule that's primarily how God works 
God uses the DNA of the mother and father to create us and our children and and we fit in best with them and their ministries and the idea that you've got to go somewhere else to establish yourself and find yourself that that makes no sense right. from a creationalist philosophy and mindset that would only make sense to the evolutionist the random chance and you've got to walk right. around randomly to find where you fit and then hopefully one day you'll you'll fit that that's crazy no god uh, placed us into god families places us yes. yeah when you went to new guinea on your own you you raised some support you went over to work with your parents were yeah. you married at that time so my second year of bible school i was called by the lord it was uh the third year i graduated from bible school and uh met and married my wife deborah and and then it was uh just a year after that that we went on the road to raise money for about seven months, and then went to New Guinea. Right. And how long were you in Papua New Guinea? A total of about 17 years. Okay. Yeah. Now, this is a difficult question, 17 years. Summarize for us, what what did your ministry consist? What was the mission work like for you and for your family? So the very first thing that began burdening my heart was was evangelistic-type work. My dad had purchased three tents as a missionary and and my first job was really just sort of setting up tents for dad and 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 then I I partnered with another missionary Wayne Fair and Wayne Fair and I began preaching around and he would lead music and I would preach and we would do that for for weeks so we would set up uh, our, our tent and and we would preach for two weeks, and we'd preach for three weeks, and we'd preach for four weeks each night. And the longer we went, the more results we would see. And we would go to these various places. And uh, that that was the first real ministry that we got was this evangelistic type. And then... Those must have been really exciting times. Oh, my goodness. Yes. God used some, some independent Baptists in, a, in an yeah. incredible way incredible. in the country of New Guinea. The, the unity that we had. We had about seven men, um, not, not including myself. So I was, I was eighth, and, and then there were several other people my age that came in, the next generation. And then God used these men to start about 50 churches in the Wiru tribe. And that's where my younger brother, Chad, is still working there now. And so that's where I came in and then began working with Wayne Fair and then all these churches of various stages of growth and a few of them kind of fizzled out and and some of them grew and flourished and multiplied and sent other preachers out to uh, start other churches. So it's just, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to see. To see the Word of God survive and thrive in other cultures and that's the goal, and that's the goal. And it is foolish. It is an insult to think that God needs this certain type of culture or this certain type of... No, no, no. Christianity, it goes, it transcends. It's high and, and, and holy and wonderful and above all the different various forms of government. It survives and thrives in any 
Yes. In any environment. Yeah. The Jew on one end, the 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 Greek on the other end. Yeah. The entire cultural spectrum. The gospel right. is the power of God into power salvation of God. across the spectrum. Beautiful. Everywhere in the world. That's right. It it sure seems that the burden that you essentially inherited, the 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 work of God that began in your father's heart and carried over into your own. It seems as though your family thrived on the mission field. Did you did you, did you work at that uh, communicating to your children that we're not? Uh, it's great serving God. This is a this is a joy. This is a privilege. Absolutely, I believe that the ministry that doesn't begin at home doesn't begin. It starts right there in the home. It starts in my heart, and then it comes out my mouth and my life, and then my spouse, and then our our children. And the idea that those that know us best will get disillusioned, that's a crazy idea. Those that know us best and are the closest should have a greater desire, unless there's a bit of dishonesty or lack of character or something that's not quite right. So a little bit of corruption. So we need to strive to be honest and really living out all that that God has called us to and we ascribe to and believe in and our our life and the policies of our life should be the fulfillment of the faith we ascribe to so in terms of the development of your ministry in New Guinea very evangelistic and itinerant evangelistic uh, yeah. ministry initially but it also developed into church planting in time so uh, could you comment on how yeah. the, the ministry took shape over so, the course of years? So we are we are working initially just bouncing from village to village, preaching seven days, 10 days, 14. The longest was 30 days. And I started feeling that this could go on forever, but that it lacked infrastructure. It lacked trained men to carry things on. And so I settled down in a village and began working there, and I did the same thing. I started my own meeting, and I went ahead and skipped the song service, and I just preached every morning and every night, invited myself as the guest preacher, and I just preached on the village street. I, I got a little uh, wireless microphone and a little 12-volt battery and I, a little hotspot speaker made by Galaxy, and I hid it in a little duffel bag and I would charge it each evening on this little solar panel and set it out in the village street and I would preach and it would amplify my voice just enough um, to be heard by the whole village really and so every uh, morning just as the sun was coming up I would I would preach a message and it wasn't a it often wasn't a very confrontational message it was it was a new message that God had given me that I would study and prepare for. But it would be a message that would not be so repulsive as somebody would hear every morning. And then that evening, just as people are laying down, I would preach to them. And I had a captive audience because I was the only show in town. And um, and my speaker would permeate the thatched roof huts. And I could talk to everybody. And I would I would play a little bit of music, and I would it was kind of like a radio broadcast, which then led to the next phase, radio, Christian radio, and it came because of preaching to our to my my little village, uh, 
for uh, 60 days every morning and every night. And I thought, the, the whole nation needs this. And so we began to pray about starting a radio station. And then we, we moved from the remote village that we lived in into a more central area. And, and uh, again, Wayne Fair and I preached another 30-day meeting. At the end of 30 days, God had done some incredible work. There were three churches that were already started in this, in this town, in this area that serviced the entire region. And I began to work with these three churches and talked about our plans for the radio station. Uh, somebody deeded us this battlefield where five ro- uh, warring tribes would gather and and there was blood all over the ground. Now you couldn't actually see it, but uh, this was disputed land wow. with uh, with blood in its soil of these five tribal people. And to bring peace, they said, we need a peace child. We have to give this land. It can't be given to any one of us because we'll fight again. So let's give it to the missionary. And they gave it to us. And... Um, and that became the, well, it had two little little hills, two little mountains on it that rose about 20, 30 feet. And one of those little hills was my house, and the other little hill was the radio station. And we built a girl's dormitory and a boy's dormitory and a little Bible school. We built a church and built a little manager's house. And Gene Sharp came over and spent 12 months with us, and we brought in $30,000 worth of radio gear in little plastic totes that we bought at Walmart. And, and uh, had it all licensed and inspected by the, the government, and they granted us our license, and they were so excited about everything. Not only did they grant us the license for that station, Bible FM, but they granted us a license for every single province and a TV license for every province. We had no intention, <laughs> nor did we ever start TV, but that's what they, they just said, get in and do something. God, just open the doors more doors than we could ever walk through. And, you know, I have found that true, that if we will trust God and do things God's way and not cut corners, God always provides, and God opens the doors, and there's more money, there's more opportunity, there's more people, there's more everything. God does things in abundance. When he makes water, he makes oceans. When he makes lands... (laughs) He makes lots of land. When he wants lumber, he builds forests. And if we'll just trust God, oh, he's worthy and he's he's rich. We just got to trust him and get out of our little finite mind just that thinks in such, such scarcity and such drivelly little tiny amounts. And our, our little calculators were calculating all these things. And God's saying, just trust me. Trust Amen. me. I had not heard that story about the donation of that ground. You talk about a beachhead, a stronghold in, in for for the Lord Jesus Christ for the gospel in yeah. in something in in a place that the devil had owned yes. for a long time. Yeah. That is a great it's yeah. a great story. And that had not been done in New Guinea uh, prior to that time. Christian yeah. radio uh That's right. in that way. Uh, as a matter of fact, that very year was the very first year, and I didn't know this, that the government had allowed, had had licensed, had allowed licensing for private companies. Before that, it was all government 
TV and radio. Yeah. And so that very year, there was the formation of two secular radio stations, uh, Yumi FM, Now FM, and they just brought in um, Western rock and roll right. and pop music. And that was kind of the cattle prod from the Lord that I heard this this horrific, yeah. uh, me-first, greedy, lustful music being pumped into the society. And that is the globalized um, plan. That is the global plan, is to unify everybody around, sure. uh, around our own lust, our own greed and sense of hunger and passion for gain. And the only remedy is the gospel. Amen. As we sort of segue to getting from New Guinea to this entirely new work uh, domestically, I had I had a question I wanted to ask you. I hope perhaps this will make some sense. Um, your children were raised on the foreign mission field. Yes. Um, you've got seven children. Yes. And uh, all of your kids, I guess, were young. Uh, I mean, they grew up on the mission field. We had three that were born in in the states, and four that were born in the village in New Guinea. So, we sometimes call kids in such a case third culture uh, kids. They're not exactly culturated in America. They're not exactly culturated in New Guinea. No. It's a unique. It's a unique setting. So I, I was sort of curious. It's it is easy for us uh, as as American Christians be, to become discouraged, even on some level disgusted with the at times with the direction that we see our nation taking. Yes, with the moral decline, right. with the corruption, uh, spiritual corruption. It is a spiritual battle, not not simply the the, the political piece, but that as well. And I'm I, I'm wondering, it, how do you? Um, of course, uh, for a missionary family, you're sent out from an American church. Yes. Um, you are. Uh, that's your. That's your home church. You're still taking occasional furloughs. You're coming back to the states. Right. Um, so you're. You're. There's a sense in which you are culturating your children. You're. You. You want them to keep certain ties with the United States. Yes. Um, that th- there's a relationship there that's got to be maintained. I wonder if it's not even more difficult sometimes to see the state of our country as an expat or even more specifically as a foreign missionary when you're surrounded by a different culture and uh, where you where perhaps there's almost the sense that you're that that the culture in which you were sent out of even though we're sent by the church we still have a we're, we have a culture yes. is disappointing to see that deteriorate from afar um, I, I'm just wondering if your family experienced that while you were in New Guinea. Um, how do you how do you maintain an appreciation for America in a manner of speaking while you're in a foreign country? It's uh, I would just think that it's even easier sometimes to be discussed in a manner of speaking. Does that yeah. make sense? The, the yeah, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about, and those people that live in another culture um, often experience. Um, the feeling that they don't belong. Right. Um, but I actually embrace that. I don't fight that. I think the ideal Christian life is a feeling of a pilgrim and yes. a strang- stranger. Yes. And so my parents raised me 
to feel uncomfortable and not at home in this world, wherever it was. Now, I'm to be an ambassador. I'm to reach out. I'm to uh, overlook as much as possible. I'm trying to work, but I am not dependent upon that culture. Now, that is absolutely essential. I think to become dependent upon Western society or the American ideal or to state, well, we don't do this at home, is to actually take away from the Christian life. And the Christian life, the Bible is our guide. Now, you can tell by my accent, the environment that I was raised. You, we can tell by the words we use, what we've studied and what we've given ourselves to, what we've read, what we've listened to. Hand gestures, dress style, all of that. Now, here's what I think. We should compromise everything we can but the gospel and the eternal truth of the Bible to reach others. That means what I'm my comfort zone, my my ideal of uh, time in New Guinea was a big deal. Missionaries would talk about time and they would say, well, um, we start church at this time and to wait because the New Guinean way was we don't have we don't need to worry about this this time uh, the the kind of the joke was Americans all have watches but they don't have time in New Guinea they they don't have watches uh, they have time but no watches and and the truth is this Christianity is not based in American or Western ideology. It's totally foreign. And if we were to go and, and, and live in the Middle East, in Israel with Jesus and the disciples, it would be different. And so we cannot make our culture the bench standard. Now we can take the good things that we know sure. and, and institute them and, and help people. And, but once you stop helping once you, not stop helping, but once you stop hoping and you lose your hope over something that's not in the Bible, okay, our standard is not biblical, it has become cultural. So I think, I don't know, maybe we should be the fourth culture, I don't know. Sure. Our culture is heaven, our home is heaven. Absolutely. And our standard is the Word of God. So, in a sense, when you're when you're reared in that kind of setting, it it probably helps to own that more biblical framework of being a stranger and a pilgrim, because yeah. everything is a bit strange. You're, yeah. you're, <laughs> there really is no uh, home culture, strictly speaking. Right. Yeah. Which is the scriptural idea? We're ambassadors. We're we're from another country. So, in Washington D.C. There is a street that's called Embassy Row. And all the nations of the world, except four, four enemy nations, that are there and they have an ambassador and they have a staff. And most of the staff is from that nation or sometimes they hire different people. Um, and they're represented. And their job is to come in and, 
and learn our culture and be the segue, be the bridge between the two cultures. And they have, every year they have a big festival day and and that's a, a, a mass ave and, and, and people walk up and down the street and they'll They'll have tables out there, and they have traditional music, and and the ambassador wears traditional clothes, and they have traditional food, and they have some little cultural something something going on, and it's it's a it's a great little uh, day. It's like a fair. You walk through, and you see you see the world just walking a few miles down the street. Well, very much so in a sense. We are to be the ambassador of heaven. We are the segue. We are the bridge between whatever culture it is and heaven. You know, when Jesus said, I am the way, that wasn't a new word or a new concept. That was very Jewish. Jews believe there is one way. It's God's way. And every other culture is some degree, one degree, five degrees, 15 degrees, off of the way. So when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's talking about three very fragile things. You can get off of the way very easy. You can um, get away from the truth very easy. And life, incredibly complex, very fragile. So Jesus is saying, I'm it, and we are the ambassador of that way. There's not all these ways. There's one way, and everything else is off the, off the path. Well, with that framework in mind, we perhaps overemphasize at times uh, geopolitical distinctions in terms of missions. Yes. Because the mission is basic. It's universal. There's no place where we're not supposed to be on mission and we're supposed to be on mission wherever we may be deployed. And sometimes uh, that deployment changes. Yeah. Um, and, and that is in time what happened for your family. And it's not uncommon for a missionary to change fields. Uh, and there are there are uh, any number of reasons that a, that a field may change. Access to certain countries change. Sure. Health changes, partnerships in missions change, burdens shift, and so forth. Uh, however, <laughs> from New Guinea to Washington, D.C., that is really a stark contrast, culturally yes. speaking. Um, so walk, walk us through, if you would, uh, how this transition came about in your own heart and how you went about uh, implementing that change. So how did God begin to deal with you about planting a church in Washington, D.C.? How did that relate to your satisfaction that God was moving you out of New Guinea to a new field? So that is a great question, and I'm asked that quite a bit. Um, it's hard to quantify, but I'll, I'll do my best to be concise here. Um, it, was, it was a several-year process that was going on, and I think it started with uh, realizing that our church had reached a level of maturity that they wanted somebody, one of their own, to lead. Now, me as a, a foreigner, uh, pastoring was good, and they were all proud of me. And But the next level of maturity was, I want to do it. It's much like a seventeen-year-old, eighteen boy, eighteen-year-old boy, 
it, it's great to use dad's money, but now I want to use my own money. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yes. And if we don't reach that, that's something's wrong. Right. So I was aware of that. I saw that. Secondly, but very similar, um, Leslie, who was my assistant at the church and manager of our radio station, was doing great, really good. And so I would have to either really disempower him and limit him or move him out of the way or I would have to move out of the way. One of those three things was going to have to happen because he was a dynamic, good leader. People were following him. And he was different than me. Sure. So I would have to overpower him or else he would overpower me or we'd have to part ways. The third thing that was happening was my heart had changed. And your heart is fickle. And so, you know, that's hard to grab a hold of. But all of a sudden, I started getting interested in the direction of our nation. I was interested in politics and policies. I started getting, doing research on how many people were going to church in the urban areas, in the rural areas, in the north, in the, in the south, in the east, in the west, in the midwest. And I started um, looking at the universities and what sort of, what the culture was there. I started tracking the work of the Confucius Institute, which is an organization out of China that that is um, building some of the nicest areas in the world in every one of our countries, in some of the nicest towns of our cities of our of our nations. And um, even in Washington, D.C., the Confucius Institute rebuilt one of the worst areas. It's now one of the best areas and uh, did it with a loan and um, uh, permission to teach at the universities. All of this very much, it arrested my attention. And I had no interest in that before. I had no. I was interested in New Guinea, and the jungles, and the tribal people, and that's that was my heart. But my heart had changed. The next thing was my kids. My kids that had come to the age where they need to be coming back to the states, and I was faced with um, sending them back to to my church or another sister church or sending them back to the Bible, a Bible college or some somebody to act as parents or something and, and get them to uh, now learn this new culture. And uh, four of my kids were born in the, in the village and their first language was, uh, was not English. Their third language was English. And so, all right, how does this work? I don't know. And so I was wrestling with all of this. And I, I sent uh, letters and I asked, uh, letters didn't work so well, but I called pastors. They do much better with calls. And, and asked them their advice. And it was confusing. Well, you could do it this way, but I knew this one guy. It worked great. It worked bad. It'd do it the other way. It worked good. It worked. And basically all the advice was get the mind of the Lord. God will lead you. God will show you. And so I really needed God's direction. 
we had a, an evangelist come, Sam Gipp, came and preached for us, and I talked to him about all of this. And he said, brother, pray about coming to America. Now, I, 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 okay, he's an evangelist. His burden's for the United States. Okay, okay, all right, I'll pray. But when I prayed, it, my heart moved. And so we got out the Rand McNally map, and we started looking at maps. And, of course, I'm from the Northwest, and I was born in California, we lived for a few years in Colorado. We moved to Idaho. And and so I started thinking about the Northwest. And I thought about Seattle. That's kind of the big city in the Northwest. And so I started praying about Seattle. Sam Gipp went out and preached for my dad and then came back to, to my area. And he said, well, what have you been doing? I, I, I said, God is moving my heart. It's only been like 10 days or something. But God is doing something in my heart. And I'm praying about Seattle. And Brother Gipp said, let me show you something. And he turned the page from Washington and Northwest. And he said, pray about this place. And, of course, the next page was Washington, D.C. And I was like, no, <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm not going to pray about the well. Okay, oh, fine, I'll pray. And I mean, the Lord just started working. And it was in response to my submission to him as my authority and as I would pray. God would move me and stir me. And the things that I thought would be repulsive became attractive. And I started getting advice and seeking. And, and people said, pray about this. And I wrote an email and uh, to some pastors in D.C. And said, do you need any help? I, I figured D.C. has got to be covered. I mean, they've probably got hundreds of churches there. Probably our little denomination has hundreds of churches there. <laughs> And and no nobody responded. Nothing. Wow. And I went, okay, well that's that's a clear answer. That was that was just personal ambition or this was some sort of, you know, emotional something. Okay, that's gone. Nobody responded. But I was praying and I, I sought the Lord. I went in my office and I knelt down and prayed and set aside several days to seek the Lord. And Brother Lee, the Lord didn't show me anything. I, I felt like I got close to God and I had a wonderful time reading and preparing and now my week I used up my all my week I hadn't prepared my sermon for Sunday and my Sunday school lesson uh, I had actually given to Leslie he's gonna start a new series but I didn't prepare my message and now I felt very behind I'm like oh man I'm not ready and so Saturday night I tried to prepare a message but my heart it was stuck I had no message, and I'd read the Bible, and it, it was, I had no message. So I, I, I have this little sheepskin rug that I pray on. And I prayed on my little rug, and, and uh, I just surrendered to the Lord. I said, Lord, call me to go. Call me to stay. Just show me anything. I'm, I volunteer. I want your will. Just show me. And I left my office filled with confidence God's going to show me the way. And I'm going to get a message by tomorrow morning. <laughs> Went to sleep Saturday night. I woke up. I thought I would have some message in my mind. I had no message. And I brought my sheepskin rug from the office to my to my bedroom and knelt down next to the bed. And my wife and the kids, they were, they were out um, doing whatever they were doing. And I had turned off my, my phone and, for the week. And then I, I turned it back on and... And that Sunday morning, 
I was praying on my rug next to my bed and I just raised my hand and I just said, Lord, I need to start preparing a message. I don't want to just walk into the pulpit with nothing. I don't want to cancel. I don't want to just ask somebody else to stand up and preach. I need a sermon and I need a call. Lord, just show me. I'm confused. I'm I'm, I'm very desperate. And I raised my hand up and I just said, Lord, show me a sign. <laughs> and my phone chimed that it had received an email. And I knew, I knew that that was my answer. <laughs> and I picked up my phone, unplugged it, and I went out into the living room. I said, Deborah, kids, come over here if we've got an answer from the Lord. And I was very sober, and they, they came over. And I wasn't scared. I was happy, and I opened up that email. And sure enough, there it is. It was from Pastor Phil Bishop, pastor of Lighthouse Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. And he said, Brother, I always answer <clears throat> emails. It's the culture of D.C., I don't know how I missed your email for these two weeks. Please forgive me. But I knew. And he went on to describe that there's a huge need, and he talked about the 21 churches in the D.C. area, and 7 million people, and they desperately, desperately, he talked about the ages of the pastors, uh, the approximate attendance of these churches. We desperately need help. And he used these words, jump in, the water's fine. And I read that email to the kids and my wife, and they were like, wow. And the kids were like, okay, let's go to church. And my wife and I were looking at each other, wow. And we walked over to the church. The Lord still hadn't given me my message yet. But I remembered Leslie is going to be teaching Sunday school. So I sat up there in, my, in, the, in the pew up on stage, and <clears throat> the Lord had had encouraged our people to build this beautiful building. Now, we raised a lot of money for various radio projects, but I never allowed any money to be given to the church building. I told our people, this is sacred. This, my job is to build you, and your job is to build the building. Amen. And we are not going to give this opportunity to anybody else. So I had people call and say, man, we're excited. We want to give $1,000. I said, well... You can give to this or that, but you can't give to the building. It's it's a sacred thing. and Our people are going to build it. Oh, they built a magnificent building. Beautiful church furniture. And just, it's it's really nice. Tile, floor, and everything. Now, our people live in huts, but they built a magnificent building. And so I'm sitting up there, and I'm looking at my beautiful people out there, and Leslie gets up, and I led Leslie to the Lord 10 years ago at this time and discipled him. My wife led his wife to the Lord and discipled her, and now there are our assistants and managers of the station, and he opens the book. I'd given him several little Sunday school help books on the book of Jonah, and he opens up the Bible, and he reads verse 1, and then Jonah chapter 1, verse number 2. Arise, go cry against that great city, for their wickedness has come up before me. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. It wasn't Jonah, it was me. It wasn't Nineveh, it was D.C. And I, I didn't dare look up from the Bible. Those words were just 
burning on the page and in my heart. And I looked down and the Lord had spoke to me. It's the most wonderful thing in the whole world to know that your creator is directing you and showing you and revealing his purpose. And and I knew that everybody thought I should just stand up right now and they were all going to drive me to the airport. Arise, go. And I finally looked up and to my surprise, nobody was looking at me. They're looking at Leslie. He's teaching the lesson. Except for one person. That was my wife. And she was locked on me and I was locked <laughs> on her. And it was just wonderful. God has called us to D.C. Okay, well, we need to know about D.C. because here we go. Let's go. It took about a little more than a year to wrap everything up, hand everything to Leslie and Betty. And, and, and they took over. And we made the journey of a lifetime. We got on the plane in in New Guinea and and the, all the people came and said goodbye to us and and we hundreds and hundreds of people there at the airport and we all sang together and wept and cried praise the lord and we got on the plane and then we got off the plane after you know making our way through the air, airports in Washington DC that was the advice of my pastor Rick DeMichael he just said you know where you're going culturally don't stop here in Idaho. Go straight there. Go just fly right over. Go straight there. And it's the concept of when you come out of your shell, whoever you see first is Mama. And and he wanted. He said, just get where you're supposed to go, and God will, God will bless. And we got arrived, and nobody was there to pick us up at the airport. We went to the hotel. And that next week. We went and bought some, some <laughs> a soccer ball and a baseball and a frisbee and we went and a football I think and went went to the park and said kids make a friend and that's how we started our church. Amazing. That's where we'll stop for today in my conversation with Pastor Brad Wells. In part two, Brother Brad relates more about the work that he's engaged in over the past seven years in the nation's capital, including the spiritual climate in America's seat of government and some of the spiritual gains that their young church has experienced thus far. You can subscribe to this program wherever you receive your podcasts. And if it's been a blessing to you, please feel free to invite others to tune in. I always welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond.